Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Sir John's Club. So we're really talking about gentlemen's clubs in general in this episode. But to get us started, we are looking at a scene from Sense and Sensibility. At this point in the novel, the Dashwood ladies are settled in at Barton Cottage, and Sir John stops by because he will be away from home in the evening and has come to the cottage to ask the Dashwood ladies to dine with Lady Middleton. So here's the text. One or two meetings of this kind had taken place, without affording Eleanor any chance of engaging Lucy in private. When Sir John called at the cottage one morning to beg, in the name of charity, that they would all dine with Lady Middleton that day, as he was obliged to attend the club at Exeter, and she would otherwise be quite alone, except her mother and the two Miss Steeles. Sir John and I have very different definitions of alone time. Agreed. <laughs> the broadest definition of gentlemen's clubs in this era is that they were private social clubs for upper-class British gentlemen. They were exclusive spaces for men to drink, dine, gamble, and gossip away from their homes and provide social connection. However, according to Charles Marsh, author of the 1828 work The Clubs of London, that definition just won't work for him. He writes, It is not easy to describe all that is included in so complex an idea. Once fetter it with the chains of a definition, circumscribe its comforts, its enjoyments, its warm communion of heart within the limits of any precise term, and it is no longer a club. <laughs> the first rule of the club is that we don't talk about the club. We don't try to define the club. Well, and he goes on to really lean into this like idealized version of what gentlemen's clubs are and how they codify the best of camaraderie, manly honor, and social structure during the 18th and early 19th century. He has a lot of feelings. He has some very strong emotions about the topic, which I suppose was a very common sentiment during the time. One's club or clubs were indicative of one's social standing, network, and interests. So it was a very easy way to sort of communicate who you were and what mm -hmm. you were about and just how fancy you were. Yeah, drop a club name and people understand a lot about you. Before we get any further into what clubs were and how they functioned, let's lay a bit of groundwork on how they emerged during the 18th century. Clubs grew out of the coffee houses and chocolate houses that were really popular in the 17th century. These coffee and chocolate houses were public gathering spaces exclusively for men and were largely popular spaces for sociability. Even though they were exclusive to men, they were not exclusive to gentlemen, and even had a slight reputation for nearly radical equality and republicanism. There's a reason that Charles II tried to ban them in 1675. The fact that coffee houses weren't exclusive was one of the main reasons that gentlemen's clubs started to exist. Within these coffee houses, groups of wealthy, powerful, and or titled men started to hold their own smaller meetings. The most representative example of this evolution is White's, the oldest existing London club. Francis and Elizabeth White, formerly Bianco, opened White's Chocolate House in 1693. 
Sometime around 1697, an internal club began to form as aristocratic patrons began to seclude themselves from the rest of the public space. According to Amy Milne Smith's article, Coffee Houses to Clubhouses, quote, Coffee houses attracted political junkies as well as gamblers. The high stakes of the gaming at White's attracted a rather mixed society that included many who were not bound by a gentleman's code of honor. Thus, White's Club originally formed as an association of gentlemen who could be trusted to pay their gambling losses. The club was replete with the most vaunted landowners and politicians of the day, even in its early days, and men gained admittance on the basis of their personality, talent, or ability to amuse and entertain. (laughs) You must be convivial to be at White's. So this insular club continued to exist within the larger chocolate house for several years, codifying membership and other regulations in their first rule book in 1736. In 1778, White's moved to its current location on St. James's Street and became the exclusive gentleman's club we're familiar with. It still excludes women from membership today. It's, it's still an operating club. From this new building and its very famous bow window, the likes of Beau Brummel would dispense judgment and snobbery on a regular basis. What fun to know that you've received a set down from Beau Brummel from his bow window. <laughs> Clubs like White's really set the precedent for a very specifically stratified and exclusive social space in British metropoles. As Venetia Murray points out in her book, In Elegant Madness, High Society in Regency England, as gambling became more popular, quote, the ministers and men of fashion very naturally preferred to lose their fortunes to each other in privacy and decorum. <laughs> so they formed their own private houses or clubs. According to Valerie Cape Deville's article, The Ambivalent Identity of 18th Century London Clubs as a Prelude to Victorian Club Life, quote, If 18th century London clubs were reserved for the higher ranks of society, they were above all homosocial spaces. Most of their activities were clearly considered unsuitable for ladies. By the end of the Regency era, there were several popular and powerful private clubs in London, including Brooks and Boodles, that centered around St. James's Street, which served as the epicenter of what was called Clubland. It's like an amusement park for men. Yes. Like, it's very on the nose, really. Men could have membership at multiple clubs, although there were often complex rules about which clubs were considered compatible. So according to Jane Rendell in her book, The Pursuit of Pleasure, Gender, Space, and Architecture in Regency London, quote, In the 18th and early 19th centuries, members' rule books set out inter-club rivalries explicitly. For example, members of Boodles could belong to all other clubs except Whites. Only members of Whites, Boodles, Brooks, Arthurs, the Cocoa Tree, and the Travelers were considered eligible at Crockford's. In this way, male identity was constructed through codes of exclusion and inclusion, distinction and emulation, through the patriarchal exclusion of all women to the clubs, and through the fraternal inclusion of specific men in certain clubs. Like they are just got layers and layers of exclusivity happening here. Yeah, that specific men is important to note as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Clubs would sometimes host more open events 
For example, Claire Tomlin has this account in her book, Jane Austen, A Life. Back to Hampshire again in April, when the glorious news of Bonaparte, vanquished and dethroned, arrived. At Alton, there were illuminations for the victory, and supper was provided for the poor. Mansfield Park was published, without fanfare, on the 9th of May. Henry came down for his birthday in June, and took Cassandra back to London with him. He celebrated the victory by attending a ball given by White's club at Burlington House. Jane was impressed, slightly shocked, indulgent. Henry at White's? Oh, what a Henry. <laughs> I do love that. What a Henry. He's so fancy now. My brother is going to a ball hosted by White's. Clubs also began to develop more specific criteria for membership, especially as the 19th century progressed. So Henry was not a member of White's. He was just at an event hosted by White's. But then we have these very specific kind of criteria evolving for membership. So for example, clubs like the Travelers Club excluded from membership anyone, quote, who has not traveled out of the British Isles to a distance of at least 500 miles from London in a direct line. I mean, they are very precise about what they want in their membership here. Clubs were started for a myriad of reasons. This anecdote comes from Robert Morrison in his book, The Regency Years. Watier's on the east corner of Bolton Street was the greatest of the gambling clubs. The regent, at the time still Prince of Wales, had impetuously suggested its founding when, after listening to guests at his dinner table complain about the bad food at White's and Brooks, he rang for one of his personal chefs, Jean-Baptiste Watier, and asked him if he would like to start a club. <laughs> that is so pretty. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you say the food is bad? Well, we will start a club with amazing food. I know a guy. Let's start uh -huh. a club. <laughs> So gaining membership in these kinds of clubs required that an existing member sponsor you and put your name forward for a vote. Club members then held an election in which they would cast their votes using small white and black balls. A vote in support of membership was represented by a white ball, and they vote was a black ball. And at some clubs, like Whites, Boodles, and Brooks, a single black ball vote was enough to deny your election. And this type of voting is definitely where we get the term blackballed. And it really is kind of this like, oof, that hurts, right? You didn't make the cut, sir. <laughs> Perhaps as a result of all this exclusivity, for a man to be deemed clubbable, a term coined by Samuel Johnson in 1783, was perhaps one of the best compliments one could receive in these male contexts. The term meant a man would be welcome in important and influential social spheres through a network of these gentlemen's clubs. Yeah, well, he's clubbable, yeah. He's got some real clubbable energy on him. <laughs> oh, man, the fact that that's a word, just, it's very revealing. Like, oh, it comes from this idea, yeah, of like, let's plug this guy into our network. We want this one. Totally clubbable. There is obviously a huge amount of history and nuance to gentlemen's clubs that we don't have time to get into. But a couple of the biggest takeaways from the era are that these clubs became male exclusive spaces that were places of immense power and influence. They could be essentially gaming dens where fortunes were won and lost due to extreme betting, although gaming hells, which are a parallel type of establishment, were even more entrenched in betting, with fewer structured rules 
and less exclusivity. Clubs could also be semi-domestic spaces where men could socialize, gamble, and dine. Some clubs even had sleeping quarters, large libraries, and spaces for physical activity or creativity. But they were also spaces of significant political influence, where deals were made and bargains struck. And because only a very small segment of society was allowed in, that kept the power and influence in the hands of a very, very small group of men. Mm -hmm. Rendell provides a very apt overview of the role of clubs in this period when she writes, quote, Unlike the usual conception of the city as the male space of work and institution, the club shows that public masculinity was constructed around notions of domesticity, leisure, intimacy, and privacy. The allocation of certain clubs and spaces within clubs to specific groups of men gave club members the opportunity to define their masculine identity through the occupation and control of key spaces. Which I think really does sum up this kind of the really core intention behind the invention of these clubs. Yeah, it's all about like that you don't even have to worry about who you're going to socialize with because the club has already done the work for you. You know that if you go there, you will be around gentlemen who went to the quote unquote right schools, who came Mm -hmm. from the right families. Yeah, it's already vetted for you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So much of the history that we've mentioned is fairly specific to London gentlemen's clubs, but as the passage from the novel at the top of the episode makes clear, there were clubs throughout England, and indeed the British Empire, not all of the clubs would necessarily be as codified or structured as those like White's. Right. Sir John's reference to his club at Exeter is likely one of these less structured regional gentlemen's clubs. If Sir John's club was a dedicated space, you know, that there was a physical building that they went to rather than just a gathering of gentlemen at someone's private domestic space, it's likely that he spent his evening that he describes here at Mall's Coffee House in Exeter. According to Sidney Heath's 1912 history of Exeter, the building was constructed in 1596 and, quote, on the introduction of coffee into England. Malls was opened as a club and coffee house by an Italian named Mall, or at least so the local history goes. It's also very likely that it was named for a woman named Molly. And then Heath continues, as such, it was a well-known and popular resort with the citizens of Exeter and the squires of the neighborhood until 1829. Sir John is likely primarily interested in a club as a place to drink, play cards, and gossip, He's not one, I would imagine, who leans heavily into the political or networking elements of a club. Although, you know, obviously making and keeping local connections would certainly be a byproduct of club attendance. And Sir John is a very gregarious, outgoing guy. So Mm -hmm. he's certainly going to be sort of networking even without trying to network (laughs) while he's there. But he sees it on this kind of like social level, I would imagine. Yeah. I think for Sir John, the main lure of the club would be the chance to socialize and to get all the good gossip. To share with Mrs. Jennings, obviously. (laughs) Right? Yes. One of the other major references to gentlemen's clubs in Austen's novels comes from Northanger Abbey, when General Tilney states that, quote, I cannot in decency fail attending the club. I really could not face my acquaintance if I stayed away now. For, as I am known to be in the country, it would be taken exceedingly amiss. So he is likely referring to a local club as well. 
but he seems to be viewing his club more as like a duty or a responsibility. He's he's definitely the sort of guy who's only interested in how a club can forward his own self-interests. He's got to be like the biggest fish in the pond, which is definitely the vibe mm-hmm. I get from this passage where he's like, they need me. I'm very amazing and they will miss me. Or he's probably going to do the networking and the political scheming with the big wigs. Like he's not he's not a recreational club attendee. He's like, I am here for business. And I don't I don't think he's clubbable. Like Sir John, clubbable. General Tilney, not clubbable. Like he's he's not fun to hang out with. General Tilney, I think clubbable in the kind of sense of maybe meeting the social criteria, yeah. you know, for like yeah. money and influence. Yeah. But yeah, maybe not the guy like you walk into the library, you see him there and you just turn around and you're like, <laughs> and I'm leaving the room. Uh, yes. Like, oh, he's too intense to approach <laughs> in like a social context. No, thank you. I really could not face my acquaintance. Like, do they really care if you don't go? They're I don't probably know. very okay with you not hanging out and glooming up the place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and, you know, Sir John just does say that he is obliged to attend his club at Exeter, but mm-hmm. it's possible maybe there was some kind of important thing. But I get the sense more that it was just like, you know, that's our weekly get together. Yeah. So I oh, gotta 100%. Go. <laughs> yeah. He's like, uh, it's guy's night. I'm out. Like, yeah. <laughs> so gentlemen's clubs also come up quite frequently in historical fiction. If you've read any number of books set in 18th and 19th century England, you've probably come across a mention of one of these clubs. Yeah. I think Whites, Brooks, and Boodles are the ones that come up most frequently, especially in historical romance. Sometimes we'll get more than a mention. You know, you might even get a scene at a club, possibly where the hero might be getting some advice from the best friend character as to how to best pursue his love interest (laughs) or... Maybe a scene of some intrigue or clue gathering, especially in the books that have a mystery plot Mm -hmm. or where the hero, you know, is like a spy or something during the Napoleonic Wars. Like there's there's a lot of that. Or sometimes it's like the hero has to go to the club that he doesn't like because that's the club that his father is a member at and they have to go and have like a contentious meeting, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, very, very plot based, like lots of important things happen Mm -hmm. in these clubs. And I think a lot, of the, a lot of authors, too, will also use it to sort of indicate, I'm a member of this club, but my father is a member of this club. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's sort of like indicating where we might argue in terms of like our political leanings or whatever the right. case might be. You know? Yeah. So, it's, so even in the fiction, it's still functioning as a shorthand for character development a lot of time then, which is kind of interesting that, that's like, that, that, we, that we still latch onto that as, as so deeply codified historically. Well, if you would like to tell us about one of your favorite clubs, you know, (laughs) maybe your excellent book club. I don't know. Chess club. I'm in. Yes. Chess club. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. And if you listen to the podcast and you're wondering like, oh, I'd like some visuals or I'd like some additional information, you Mm -hmm. know, social media is a good place to find us. Absolutely. We do some additional episode related content Mm -hmm. on there. And you can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com. And you can always email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. Stay tuned for next episode, where we will be talking about the upper and lower rooms in Bath. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.